Welcome to the 14th episode of the Customer Support Podcast, and this is your host, Sandeep Jain. In this podcast, we invite thought leaders from customer support function from both B2B and B2C companies so that you can learn about challenges, opportunities, and best practices around setting up a world-class support organization. Now, before I introduce today's guest, I would like to tell you a little bit about the sponsor for today's show. ScreenMeet is a cloud-based enterprise remote support and co-browse SaaS solution. It works with desktop and mobile devices, as well as web-based apps. It also integrates with popular CRM systems so that the information is directly connected to the ticketing system. ScreenMeet is used by the world's largest enterprise customers in over 65 countries. And you can find out more about them at screenmeet.com. All right, now let's uh, back to the podcast today. Now, today's podcast is about B2B support, and our guest is Manny Ruiz. Manny has 20 plus years experience in the enterprise sector with 15 plus years experience in the enterprise support. And he has worked for companies such as Inopath, Mobile Iron, and Sauce Labs. Currently, Manny is Vice President of Customer Success and Support at Influx Data. Now, I'm pretty sure uh, you must have heard about the company, but in case you have not, Influx Data is a private company based out of San Francisco. Uh, they were founded in 2012, and they, they have $120 million in funding. And they're the ones who created the open source time series database called InfluxDB. Now with that, I'd like to extend a warm welcome to Manny. Manny, welcome to the show. Hey, Sandeep. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Thanks for taking our time to speak with us today. So let's get into this. Can you tell us, first of all, a little bit about your journey into support? Uh, looks like you did not start your career in support, but you transitioned into it. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm an engineer by trade. I studied computer engineering at Santa Clara University, and I started my career in QA uh, and specifically doing QA automation. But one of the great things about being in QA is that you really get a good sense for how a product is consumed and what's the right way to use it. And as I started to move into the startup world where you have to wear many hats, um, they quickly put me in front of customers and asked me to start working with customers, helping them use our product. At the time, I was working for Exodus Communications uh, and you know, training them, um, troubleshooting. Uh, so quickly, my, my role started morphing into more of a support role and eventually professional services so I spent a lot of time doing a lot of hands-on professional services for these various startups. Um, and then later in my career, uh, as the SaaS world started to really take off and um, SaaS really redefined the way we thought of post-sales support and the whole world of customer success was born. And it, yeah, I learned a ton mainly through the Gainsight community and their thought leadership that had a real big impact on what kind of professional I wanted to be in post-sales. And it really just opened up the, the breadth of, of my career. And now, now I'm responsible for customer success organizations as well as support and, and services. Um, but yeah, that's been, uh, that's been my journey. Awesome. Uh, this is actually a good segue to my next question as well. So could you give audience a little bit sense about your current support organization? And by that, what I mean is like, what kind of customers are you supporting? Are these enterprise customers, uh, small and medium businesses? Um, how many support people you have? Is it tiered versus non-tiered uh, and so on? Sure. 
Sure. So here at Influx, uh, we have about overall about 600 paying customers uh, and, and there's a wide range. So, you know, we have a self-service model as well as a large enterprise model. So we have customers all the way down to a one person startup, all the way up to Fortune 50 enterprises. So folks like IBM, PayPal, Siemens, uh, Tesla, you know, they all use our, our platform and, and we have to provide support to um, that full range. Uh, today we're we're not tiered, um, but that is something that we will likely evolve to in order to provide a, a, the right level of support at the right level. Uh, and the team is um, they're based uh, all over the U.S. primarily, and then we have uh, also a team in in the U.K. Uh, we're a very remote uh, team, um, you know, in in the Bay Area, that it becomes harder and harder to get talent to get talent <laughs> at, a, at a good price. So uh, being remote friendly is super, super important. And I think we do a hell of a job here uh, with that. We, uh, uh, we have daily standups where the team collaborates. We use Slack extensively. Uh, the team really helps uh, themselves collaborate. And it just has become a natural part of, our, uh, of the way we operate. Uh, so very remote friendly and, and a wide variety of customers, um, wide variety of challenges. But uh, also uh, I'm, I'm excited about having creative ways to provide support at different levels. Understood. And how many people roughly in, in your team today? Uh, on the support side, there's about 12 um, mm -hmm. and growing. And on the customer success side, we're just building that out now. We have uh, just a few there. Got it. And what about your case volume, uh, Manny? I don't know if you can share that. Sure. Uh, so our case volume is uh, roughly three to 400 a month. Uh, so Understood. that's about average. And what is the percentage of like the break fix versus, well, I need to do this thing. Like how, where is my like informational cases versus break fix cases? Yeah, that's, um, that's a great question because it's changed quite a bit in the last year for us. Uh, so it used to be a lot of how do I type questions, mm -hmm. which um, led us to quickly realize we need to invest a bit more in our documentation. <laughs> um, so we, we had a big initiative to do that over the last year. And, and now, um, you know, I, I get a ton of compliments from customers on the depth of our documentation. Um, so it's, it's much more high, much higher split of actual break fix questions now. Um, the other thing that's happening is our customers are getting more and more sophisticated. Um, and the industry of time series databases and the use cases of time series databases are getting more complex. So that leads to more complex questions um, and more uh, more break fix opportunities. Um, so uh, in terms of percentage, um, you know, I'd say right now it's probably about 75% on the break fix and then uh, the other 25% is a combination of how to and, and probably feature requests. Understood. And, and the next question would be actually around technology that you're using in your support organization. And typically there is a, there's a call center, IVR kind of solution, uh, case management, search, uh, customer portal, um, knowledge management. Okay, yeah. Uh, so we're, we're big uh, right now. Um, we're actually going through a, a major transition right now. Uh, so we've traditionally been a Zendesk organization uh, using Zendesk as uh, our case management tool, but mm -hmm. we're moving to Service Cloud. So we're in the middle of migration to Service Cloud. Uh, on the back end, so our engineering team uses GitHub, and we use GitHub pretty extensively. Uh, so uh, we integrate to GitHub on, on the back end. Um, in terms of things like uh, knowledge base um, or, or our docs, where we host our docs, we use GitHub open source 
uh, for docs. You know, as, as you know, Influx, uh, Influx Data, the platform is um, a open source tool. So we're very big about open source and we try to leverage open source where we can. Um, we use Discourse for our community forums, uh, which is also another open source tool. Uh, but we are in a big transition on the case management side, which is our, you know, where we live every day, um, moving from Zendesk to, to Service Cloud. And the primary reason for that is Service Cloud just provides us a lot more enterprise capabilities. And as we're becoming more and more sophisticated on the support side, in terms of integration to Salesforce, you know, visibility of cases to our sales team and our CSMs, um, it flows, escalation flows, uh, entitlements for support, things like that. Um, with Service Cloud, it's it's a lot more powerful long term. Although we really did like Zendesk, we do we do like it from a agent experience perspective. Understood. So in this transition, did you have to also change like support dot influxdata.com website, which is now powered by Service Cloud? I would suppose, or will be powered by them. It will be uh, powered by them. No, no. So, well, we don't. We're not changing the URL, uh, but um, the portal where our customers land will change. So, right now, we're using a very basic portal, um, and with Service Cloud, we'll start with something basic. But that's another reason why we switched because we want to do something a lot more custom uh, that will allow us much more case deflection opportunities. Um, and there's some really cool things that we can do there. Some great things that we did back in my time at Mobile Iron in terms of case deflection um, using our portal. So one of our initiatives is to enhance that so we can drive more of our traffic to the portal instead of through email, where the majority of our, of our cases come in today through our, just our support email. Understood. Actually, I have a, a few follow-ups on this. This is very interesting, and I'll come to the uh, the, the case deflection in, in a second. But could you talk about, you earlier said you had about 300 to 400 incoming tickets, uh, uh, and there are several ways people can submit tickets. It's email, web, phone, um, maybe social media as well. So what is the percentage split in your case for these tickets? Yeah, that's changed actually quite a bit over the last... Uh, probably six months. So it, it was very much uh, probably about 75% or more through email, just support at influxdata.com. Um, but that has now uh, moved more and more towards our portal. And we haven't done too much with our portal or our old one or existing one. Um, but we have been advocating our customers and, and instructing them to use the portal more so, so that they can provide more information, more metadata with their, their support tickets. So we think that's what's led to the increase of, of the portal use. So we're about 50-50 right now, and I expect that to change even more and be even heavier on the portal once we uh, implement more functionality on, on the portal. Interesting. And do you get anything on social media or phone at all? No, not really. Uh, we have a phone line that uh, our <laughs> enterprise customers will use. They, they leverage that. Usually what happens is they submit a, if they have a very urgent case, they submit it over the web um, and then they follow up with a phone call. But aside from that, we don't get much on, on phone calls. Um, you know, most of our, most of the folks that we support are developers. So they will prefer to interact with us, you know, over the, the web or over email. Uh, and social media is not an area that we've, uh, provided support um, yet, you know, although it's something, I did quite a bit of that uh, at Sauce Labs. Um, so it's likely an area we'll explore as well. Understood. 
And uh, earlier you talked about, you know, you had a, I think 30, 70 or, or, a, or a huge split on the how-to cases, but then you added more documentation. So was this documentation in product documentation using that GitHub open source or was it a, a knowledge base documentation? No, it was using our open source or GitHub open source. So we've just made our, our core product docs um, beefier, if you will. Understood. Um, we, actually, we, we actually do not have a knowledge base technically. We don't have a separate area that we consider a knowledge base. The, the approach that we've taken to date has been to take knowledge base type uh, content and just work it into our docs. Um, because what we found is that our customers really would rather just go to one place and search there. And developers especially are used to going to one type of knowledge, uh, of doc area and, and just searching there. So it's, it's working for us now, although that might be something that we change in the future. It's very interesting you talk about this because uh, uh, as, a, as a developer and as a customer for enterprise products, you know, I, I get what you're saying. I like to see everything at one place. But when I talk to organizations, especially the technical publications team, um, you know, they like to represent facts in the product documentation. It's not about, it's not open to interpretations. You know, this button just does that. Versus, you know, knowledge-based type of documents are more around uh, solutioning, that how you put things together, uh, where there is a subjective element. And uh, when I talk to enterprises, you know, technical publications thinks that's incorrect information. It should not be living in the product documentation. And maybe it's sort of a religion conversation <laughs> type conversation. Uh, <laughs> but, but I do get the benefit if customers get everything at one place. Like you don't have to look for knowledge base versus in product documentation versus white papers, et cetera. Yeah, I certainly believe that for us in the future, uh, more of a knowledge base type repository will likely be something our customers will, will require for the exact reason that you mentioned. Uh, there are some you know, unique use cases or specific solutions that we want to call out uh, on their own. Right now we're, we're doing that in, uh, by using white papers, um, but I, I do expect that that's going to evolve. So part of this is just kind of where, the, where we are in terms of the evolution of, of us as a company. Um, but you know, again, right now it's, it's working for us in the sense that we don't have customers kind of beating down our door saying, hey, I need to find how to do this one thing and I, I don't know where it is. Um, when, when that comes up, what we do is we write, uh, we, we augment our, our documentation. So it's not so much of a reference guide, um, but I suspect that we will eventually evolve into more of a knowledge base type uh, repository as well. Got it. And you said something interesting, uh, Manny, at, at the beginning of the, our conversation, which is that you support not only the developers, but you also support Fortune 500, uh, the 50 companies as well. So it's, it's a wide range of customers that you're supporting. And then you later talked about that you want to improve uh, self-service or case deflection. Um, so it looks like you had some tricks up your sleeve there on how you want to do this. Uh, could you share some of those things uh, with us today? Sure. Sure. Uh, See, so yeah, there's a variety of, of things you can do, and every business is, is different. I've used some methods in the past uh, that, that have been effective. Um, you know, at Mobileye, we, we did something pretty sophisticated there. You know, we, we went through, I was there for eight years from customer zero all the way to customer probably 12,000 plus. So there was a big evolution in how we supported our customers. And one of the areas we certainly did uh, invest in is case deflection, 
uh, and using our portal in, in the most effective way. Um, you know, th there's probably two things that we did there that, that led to the biggest results. And one was just plugging in our portal into our, the different knowledge repositories that we had, both externally facing and internal. Uh, and, and this allowed us to uh, do the, the auto search. You know, when, you're, when you as a customer log into support portal, you have an issue, you start to enter the issue and there's an automatic search that happens um, and provides links to documentation, to knowledge base articles, to training, things like that. Um, so that was one thing. It took a fair amount of work. It seems pretty simple in principle, but it did take a fair so, amount so of you work. Built, so Manny, you built your own search, is what you're saying? We didn't build it. Um, we leveraged uh, tools um, to do that, uh, but it really did provide a, an easy way to stitch together uh, the different repositories. Got it. Understood. And uh, anything else on the on the case deflection side that you're thinking for your upcoming, you know, new portal besides search? Yeah, another great thing that we did, and I, yeah, I really don't know if you'd consider this case deflection. Um, maybe it's just a more efficient way of handling cases that are coming in. Um, but another area where I, I'd really would love to invest in this again, whether it's here or somewhere else in the future, um, we did this at also at Mobile Iron, um, and, and it's crowdsourcing uh, support responses uh, for, for different levels of, of customers. Um, and we use a tool called Directly to do this. And this was a really fascinating concept. Um, it's something that, and I will rightfully admit that when we first considered this, I thought, no way this is going to work. <laughs> um, and the whole idea is you identify you know, a set of experts on your platform. Uh, ideally outside of the company, you have folks like customers that are, that are experts that have been around using your product um, or uh, have been certified on your platform. Um, partners is a, a big area that we invested in uh, at Mobile Iron, and we had a lot of experts there, folks that you know, were even better than some of our support personnel. So we use this platform to funnel out tickets that came in from customers uh, customers had an uh, option to opt out. They didn't want this, but um, with this platform called Directly, and whoever would answer that question correctly first would receive a stipend. Um, so this whole crowdsource model, uh, not only was it an efficient way to get access to experts outside of our support organization, but with the bounty, you know, the stipend that, that you were given for responding correctly, it made it a com competition. Uh, and what would happen was these tickets were getting responded to in seconds sometimes. So the, the, the experience was actually a great experience from a customer <laughs> perspective. They'd submit an issue, and let's say they're submitting a, a, a basic question, maybe not an urgent issue. You, know, you submit a basic P3 type issue or question to a support organization, you're, you're probably not going to get a response in a short period of time. You, maybe a day or so before you get a response if, depending on the support organization and these things were being responded to in minutes and the experience on the customer side was fantastic so yeah it, it um i didn't think at the time that uh we would have enough experts to be able to answer these questions or that they'd be interested in doing it but the platform made it really easy to do and it was fun um, i actually participated in the beta 
myself <laughs> um, along with others. And it was kind of a friendly competition between you know, myself and some of the sales engineers internally. Um, and that experience doing it yourself, you know, it really opened my eyes and we really invested in this and, and it was, it was fun to do. It was innovative. Um, you know, we used it initially for our lower end self-service customers. Um, and then we started to use it for our enterprise as well, but for low, for, you know, non-critical issues. Fair. Um, yeah. Very, uh, very great experience. Um, definitely something that I would recommend. And when I, when I talk to colleagues of mine, you know, and if they have similar type use cases, I do recommend this approach. And and you think that that approach could work across other companies as well? Like, in fact, that in Flux Data, you could use the same approach? Yeah, a- absolutely. Because at Mobile Iron, it was a highly technical product, just like here. It's a very, very technical product. Um, outside, it, if it's a non-technical product, it works even better because it's probably easier to find experts on a platform. Um, in our case, you know, my initial doubts were we wouldn't find enough experts outside of the company to make this worthwhile. But I quickly saw that wasn't the case. You know, if you if you're doing business uh, at, at a certain level and for a certain amount of time, you're going to have very intelligent, skilled customers. And if you have a very heavy partner model at Mobile Iron, we did everything in Europe or outside of the U.S by a partner, so we had to educate them. Nice. So when you have that, you know, you have this, this wealth of this army of experts that you can tap into. So, so is, any place that has that, you know, could leverage this type of platform. Yeah, that's an interesting thing you're mentioning. But is, is this a tag onto a community then? Like, uh, or is this a separate product? You said directly or something, but you don't- Directly is the name of the product. It's a separate product, but uh, one of the things you could explore is to tie it to the community. And we were, we were going down that path path as well to we're exploring how to tie this into our, our community forums so when mm-hmm. somebody considered an issue in a community forum um, so at that time th- those integrations didn't exist and this is probably uh, what four years ago now i like this idea because and i'd heard this in the b2c context like maybe comcast or something where where the product is generic enough that you know the technical know-how is not required like the deep technical know-how yeah. and somebody else can help somebody someone else but for it certainly, works, it, it certainly works in that use case. Uh, and I believe Airbnb was one of their first customers. Um, but again, I, I can attest that this works in a technical environment. So long as you have the experts outside of the company, if you, have, you know, a set number of, of experts, or a good army of experts uh, outside of the company, then it can work. That makes sense. But, but, but last point on this, would that, if that is working great, uh, would that lend the idea of a community, unpaid community sort of mood? Like, why would I participate in an unpaid community then? Or how, how do they, or should they even coexist? I think they're different use cases. Um, so certainly here in, in the case of Influx, um, we have a very vibrant community. Uh, it's very open source. Um, and the community is, is, yes, it's about asking questions and getting answers, but it's more of a social environment. It's more of, you know, you want to talk shop with fellow, you know, time series experts, I see. Uh, you know, and it's not usually just a simple question I need an answer to. It's more so, Hey, you know, I'm thinking of doing something this way. What do you think? Well, Hey, I've, I've done it this way. It's, it's more of a collaborative, you know, back and forth as opposed to how do I do this one thing? Got it. And, and when you think of this technology stack as a, as a sum total is, 
do you, do you see some of the biggest struggles in this uh, technology stack? Are, are there some pain, big pain points that stand out that what if, you know, somebody were to, to fix that, that'll give you some disproportionate advantage in how you run your support? Now, the biggest issue I've had in my entire career, and I've, this seems to repeat itself everywhere I go, and, and part of the reason is because I, I spend my life in startups, um, is just the integration between the various platforms. Uh, that always seems to be a challenge. Uh, and the, the, the platforms that I'm referring to is the CRM, which is typically Salesforce, um, this, the case management tool, uh, the two that I have the most experience with are Zendesk and Service Cloud. Um, and the back-end engineering uh, case management tool, that, uh, which is typically Jira, or we use GitHub here. Um, getting those three to integrate easily, I've never seen that be easy. <laughs> it's, it's always, there's always some nuance. Um, you always have some business logic that, that is unique. Um, and, and getting them to all talk to each other in a way that is very efficient always seems to be a challenge. You, know, you, you have to throw tools at it, you have to throw consulting dollars, um, but if there's something that made that easy, made that much more push button, that would be very powerful. And is, is this comment still valid when you have CRM and case management uh, both belonging to Salesforce? Yes, it's still valid. <laughs> tell no. me it's still valid. Um, I'm curious now. Like, can you tell me specifically what are the like few pain points that specific pain points that stand out that are are still a sore points between sales cloud and service cloud integration? It's just they're different uh, audiences, right? So Salesforce, the primary audience for Salesforce is a sales team, right? So, you know, account execs that are using uh, Salesforce to manage their, their accounts in terms of sales. So, you know, opportunities are, and leads are very important um, on the marketing side, campaigns, um, things like that. Uh, the way a support agent uses an application is, is different. So, you know, and, and again, I... I Take this from two different experiences. You know, Mobile Iron, we went through the same transition. We went from Zendesk to Service Cloud. We had a Salesforce backend. Um, here at uh, Influx, we're doing the same exact thing. And there's just a, a fair amount of nuance. So uh, even though Service Cloud is built into Salesforce, there's a fair amount of customization that you have to do in order to display the things that make sense to you as a support engineer. Uh, if you're looking at a ticket and you want to know what level of support am I supposed to provide this customer? Well, you would expect that the entitlement of that, for example, would be just a simple field, but maybe it's not. Maybe there's multiple fields you have to look at. Um, so do I have to take those multiple fields and try to put some logic behind it to turn it into one field that a support engineer just looks at and decides, oh, okay, this is a platinum versus a gold customer, for example. Um, but you know, the use of entitlements, for example, maybe is not impor as important for a salesperson as it is for a support person. So because the audiences are different, even though the tools are built on the same platform, there still is a fair amount of nuance that happens. The same thing, the same thing applies to the back end. So if you have a support case and you want to escalate to engineering into a JIRA system, the way that a developer uses JIRA it's going to be a little different. There may be different teams. You may have one support case that um, 
is going to result in multiple teams having to fix a bug. Uh, you know, how do you display that in the right way on in your in your case management tool? Um, so there's always some nuance there that uh, can be challenging, and you know maybe it's just the nature of the of the problem. This is too hard to solve, uh, where you can't just put a simple tool on top of that. But something that made that easy <laughs> would would uh, would have huge value for uh, folks in my role. Interesting. And and do you see salespeople and engineering getting access to the case management system? Or directly or needing access to the, the case management? They certainly need access to what's happening there. Uh, I would not typically advise giving them direct access. Um, this is why the integrations are, are important. So in Salesforce, for example, if I'm a sales guy, I want to know what the case activity is for my customer, but I don't necessarily have to log into Zendesk or Service Cloud to, to do that. I'd rather just see it there on the object that I'm looking at. I'm looking at the account object in Salesforce, and I'd like to see case volume there. Um, so I, I don't think you need to give sales folks access to the case management tool directly. Same thing with engineering. They live in, in a world of Jira or in a world of GitHub. Uh, you know, they, they'd like to see the relevant details there and they don't need to see all the back and forth that happens between a support engineer and a customer. So that's why I, I don't think those other roles should have direct access to the case management system, but the integrations need to be clean. Okay. No, I, I think that makes sense what you're saying. Um, and what is a typical average uh, sort of closing time for a case? And I don't know, it depends on a case. Maybe it's an informational case. It's different whether it's a break fix case that's different, but is it hours, is it days typically? Uh, it certainly varies. It's, it's, really, it's really hard to answer that <laughs> question. On, well, I mean, overall, um, you know, it's on the magnitude of hours overall, but it certainly varies quite a bit. Got it. Um, and shifting gears a little bit, uh, Manny, what are the biggest priorities for you in the next six to 12 months in terms of how you want to change your support. Now we heard that uh, you're going from Zendesk to, to Service Cloud. So I think that is going to take up quite your time. I have a feeling, but <laughs> besides that, um, are there any other priorities? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, let me give you a little context. So here at Influx Data, we're going through quite a bit of growth. Um, we're growing really fast. The company's doubled in the number of customers and revenue every, every year for the last three years. Uh, so, you know, growing uh, the way or evolving the way that we support our customers is, is very critical for us. Um, on the support side, the great thing is I have a fantastic director of support that is uh, overseeing a lot of our growth there and that, that movement from Zendesk to Service Cloud. Um, but the area that we've not yet uh, fully invested in is on the customer success side. So actually the, the majority of my priorities are falling on the customer success side. And specifically that's in building a CSM and solution architect team so that we can provide proactive guidance to our customers. Uh, so that is um, by far the, the biggest priority. Uh, you know, we're in a high growth stage here and, and a lot of that is coming from you know, the success of our platform, but also the industry we're in, you know, time series, uh, is the fastest growing database segment um, for the last three years. 
um, you know, for those who don't fully understand what time series is, it's essentially anytime you're looking at data that is timestamped, that's time series. And the use cases for that has grown quite a bit uh, in the last few years. Um, you know, it started out being something around monitoring servers, for example, it's probably the most common use case. You're monitoring a server, you're looking at CPU and memory and IOPS and things like that. You need to see that over a period of time. Um, but with the advent of IoT and just a world where we have sensors everywhere that are sending data, huge, huge, huge amounts of data. Um, well, actually, they're small amounts of data, but in aggregate, it becomes huge amounts of data. You need a platform to be able to manage that in, in, a, in a way that you're taking into account storage, you're taking into account ingest, um, you're querying that data constantly. So uh, these use cases have really grown and that's what's led to the growth of the industry and the growth of, of influx data. So, so when that translates to, uh, go ahead, Sandeep. No, no, no. What I was saying is I think you're in an interesting space because your product is tied to a concept that is gaining more prominence. So I think, I think a big job that falls on the company is not about supporting, just supporting the product, but also about educational aspect of what you guys are doing. So my question was going to be around, do you offer any, any courses which people can pay for or they, they free of cost, which talks not only about your product, but also talks about time series databases in general? Yeah, that, that's a really good point because time series, is a, because it's because it's a new industry, a relatively new industry. Um, there's a lot of education that uh, needs to happen in order to, you know, for, for all of these folks who are looking for answers, uh, understand first and foremost what's time series, why why it matters to them, um, and what's the best way to solve these time series problems. So we do a lot of webinar yeah, and YouTube type videos around just educating. Uh, the industry on the uses of time series um, and the various nuances also from a from a solutions perspective because like i mentioned it's there's a variety variety of use cases for time series you know system performance is a common one application monitoring very very big uh, in the devops world uh, just devops monitoring like monitoring kubernetes clusters and things like that right um, yeah there's just a variety so we do a lot of educational video and webinars uh, on that we also provide obviously training around our own platform and because we're open source we're very open with with most of our uh, videos and, and training uh, the things that we do charge for are things like attending a conference and having a live training we'll charge for that but most of most of the rest that we do is, is very open because Understood. our platform can be consumed open source for free that makes sense and are these mostly the the purview of your marketing team or, or does this fall under you as well Today it falls under marketing. Um, you know, I've recently joined uh, Influx Data, so a lot of this work is done um, prior to me. We have a great DevRel team, so our, our developer relations team. So they're essentially our subject matter experts, um, and they do a lot of our uh, just thought leadership in the industry. And, and that's a team that we we invest in quite a bit. Got it. And the reason I was asking this is uh, actually I was talking to somebody um, who's leading support and what he said was very interesting. He, they had connected their LMS, the learning management system with their, mm -hmm. uh, with their Zendesk instance. And it was just a link. I mean, it's not like a API integration or anything of that sort, but what mm -hmm. they had done was that this LMS system was providing education. I think it was paid education if I was correct. And uh, a part of that education was just, 
what let's say the time series databases are and use cases around that. And a certain part is of course around their product as well. And I'd heard that for the first time. And so I was curious that, but you have an open source sort of uh, flair to what you guys are doing as well. But this, I think the broader point is connecting the LMS systems, the learning management systems, which is a funky name to say, well, it's just a repository <laughs> with Q&A. But I've never seen the, the only educational aspect in these ticketing systems that I've seen, Zendesk, Service Cloud, Freshworks, et cetera, is only the knowledge base. But I've never seen it turn into a place where it, it is a, a gamified, you know, you can score answers on, you know, based on how you answer certain questions. So. Yeah, the, the LMS side is uh, certainly, yeah, it, w when you're getting serious about training and using, uh, using training for uh, educating the industry, educating customers, case deflection, essentially, um, you want to do that with a sophisticated system and uh, having an LMS is, is key to that. Um, it's not something we have here yet, but it's certainly something that we will likely have in the future. Um, it's something that um, I have quite a bit of experience with in past roles. Uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier around what we did around case deflection at Mobile Iron, part of it was integrated to our LMS. So if they were asking a question that we thought, you know, or, or the, 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 the product thought, hey, you should go and view this training. It talks about this, this question you're asking. Um, this may be helpful to you. And some of that training was free. Some of that was, was paid. Um, the ones that, that, was, that was paid was usually a certification, um, which is another area that is, is very beneficial, especially to a company like ours, where a certification in time series, um, you know, in this growing industry could be valuable. Uh, it's something that we used Quite a bit at Mobile Iron. It was um, mobile device management was a, a new term, a new industry. You know, the world back then was shifting from the enterprise world was shifting from the use of BlackBerry in the enterprise to iPhones and Androids. It was a whole new world. So there was a lot of jobs that were being created around uh, mobile device management in IT. So to provide a certification uh, that is an industry certification, not just a product certification, um, was powerful. So that's Certainly areas that, that can be explored. And, and a couple of follow-ups here. Is there any specific tool for this online certifications? Is it a specific tool? Uh, right. Like, is this information, like if I want to get uh, certified on, on InfluxDB, uh, do companies use a specific tool for these certifications? Like are these online courses I take and if I pass that, I get a certification or this in-person? Yeah, you know, I've seen it done multiple ways in, in my past because, primarily because I've, I've come from a startup world, it's usually online. It's just more efficient that way. Uh, you know, technical folks uh, want to consume uh, <laughs> things in, at their pace, typically. Uh, I think it's, I, yeah, if I'm building this from scratch, you know, I would do it in a phased approach and I would start with e-learning. Uh, I think e-learning is just much more efficient, um, but you want to make it, um, you you want to make that e-learning um, very easy to consume. So it, it's it, it can't just be a video that you're watching or something that you're reading. Um, there needs to be some interactive components to it. At the very least, you want to have quizzes. Um, you know, I've seen some very creative things done in the past 
where you have live kind of live demo environments or or mocked up demo environments where you can click here click there fill out some information you know so for example if you're setting something up and you have to enter values into a field you know you can mock up things like that to make the e-learning experience more robust and make you feel like you're actually interacting with the real platform um, so that's that's the approach that i would take um, because i think it's you'll be able to reach a larger uh, audience uh, you can make the decision whether you charge for it or not but as soon as you make it interactive you make it classroom based um, you introduce some challenges uh, to, you introduce cost uh, so I have to pay for this and I usually have to pay quite a bit um, so I need to get approvals for that so that's that's one element and then you introduce logistics you know I have to fly out to this conference or fly out to uh, you know the next place they're gonna run this uh, training right so you know, you have to keep that in mind. Um, so I think it's, you know, an evolution of, of training will eventually have those, those options, those live options. Um, but I'm a big fan of e-learning and investing in some sophisticated e-learning uh, platforms. Understood. And are there any platforms that stand out from a support perspective? Uh, I don't know if Zendesk or Salesforce do any of, provide these e-learning modules, which are, maybe they do actually, I don't know. Um, you know, LMS systems have uh, have always been challenging. Um, most <laughs> of the best ones I've seen are homegrown. Uh, there are some good open source tools. I, I, I believe it's um, learning.com, I want to say is the, the platform name. But th there there are some, the, the open source ones I'm, are, I think are the best ones, but it's going to require resources. Wow, okay. It's going to require some, uh, you know, potentially some some development. But those are the ones that I think if I was building something that was going to be long term, you know, I want to I want to invest a bit in building that out. Um, there, there are some uh, definitely there's a ton of LMS systems out there that are free. If you just want basic e-learning, you have some training that you want to modularize and make it available. You know, there's plenty of LMS systems that'll that'll meet that I need. But if you want to make it a more strategic thing, I, I would go an open source route and customize on top of it. It's very interesting that, uh, and this is the last I'll speak about this, but all this online education part is a big part of this enterprise products because they're technically complex and so on and so forth. But there is no standard solution, it seems. Like you're talking about these open source solutions, but if I just want a, a thing that just works with my existing uh, Salesforce instance, because all of your universe is now centered on Salesforce. For example, if my salespeople know that uh, this account, uh, this customer account has five people who are certified by us. So uh, they're more likely to buy something more from us now because they're get they're, they're yes. not more knowledgeable. So that I would want my LMS system to sort of plug it into my CRM is, is where I'm going with it. But I've never heard an enterprise grade LMS system that is support oriented in the way that you and I are talking about. That's an observation. I could be not, not you're right, not out of the box. Uh, so what you're describing though, in terms of you know, it, it being able to view an account and view individuals who may have gone in, like if I'm a sales guy and I'm looking at an account, that's valuable information for me. Um, we have that at Mobile Iron, and it took uh, quite a bit of investment in our Mobile Iron University platform. Uh, you know, we, we built a lot of customizations into it, but we did get to a point where. I'm looking at an account in Salesforce and I have a list of contacts and I have a list of contacts that are certified. Uh, and th that's a great thing for, for me to 
know both as a salesperson and as a support person as a CSM. You know, and and we did accomplish that, but it did take uh, quite a bit of investment um, and several years before we got to that point. Wow. And, and what was that tool that you're using? You said Mobile Iron University, you mentioned. and uh, that, that was just our branding. Uh, oh, I see. You know, and, and unfortunately, I cannot recall the name of that tool off the top of my head right now. Uh, we, we did customize on top of that tool. Got it. And it was a small company that we went with because uh, they did work with us quite a bit and allow us to, to customize. Yeah, it's it's kind of surprising once again why there's no standard and education element of support. And I think it's a critical part. Because yeah. if you educate your customers, they probably won't ask you the how-to questions. <laughs> there is an opportunity there. <laughs> and and to that related point, what was the case deflection that you were seeing in your in your prior experience at Mobile Iron with all the different things that you were trying? You know, the the paid community. Is it like five percent? Is it thirty percent deflection? Uh, you know, we measured it different ways, but um, it, it was something that when we started investing more and more in the portal and in education, it became one of the key metrics. Uh, you know, I, I, I want to say it was in the 25 to 30 percent range. Um, and the reason I remember that is because when we initially measured it, it was pretty low. It was probably sub 5 percent. Uh, and, and that was a bit alarming for us. So, you know, we knew that there was a lot of low hanging fruit things that we could do and some that were um, not low hanging fruit and would take a little bit longer, but over a period of a couple of years, uh, that, that became a, a strong point. Wow. And, and this 30% once again was the, through the paid community that you're talking about. Through the, uh, it, the paid community. It was our, commu our community portal. Yeah. Through our community portal. Got it. And, and changing gears a little bit here, Manny, what are the metrics that are important for you in your current role? Yeah, so you know the way I look at metrics from a customer success organization, you know, customer success really in the SaaS business really needs to be a strategic part of the business. If it's not, then you're missing out on a big opportunity there. And when when you do set that as a target, then the goals become much more aligned with sales and revenue goals. So on the customer success side, for sure, the things that we care most about are, are around net churn. So a combination of retention and expansion. But the challenge with that also is we're not a sales organization. So there are, there's only so much impact we can make on those numbers. So one of the other metrics that is really key for me, um, more so in determining how effective my customer success organization is, is around health. Um, so around how our health, our customer health is, is trending. Um, and first and foremost, you need to define customer health and you need to automate that in order to measure it. So that, that in itself is, is uh, a tricky process. It's not a simple thing. But once you have uh, a good sense of what health indicators should be and you've instrumented that, then that's a, that's a metric that I think is one of the most important metrics and you want to see essentially that your customer base is getting healthier and healthier and, and um, not less so. Uh, so on the customer success side, those are the things that I look at most uh, on the support side in terms of just how the machine of support is, is working. The, the primary things we look at, of course, are CSAT, CSAT and essentially the, the backlog. Um, you know, the backlog tells me how healthy the machine is, you know, are we falling behind or are we, uh, you know, and getting better or, you know, are we undersized for the amount of 
volume, ticket volume coming in. Um, there's, a, there's a bunch of other metrics that we look at in support, but the two that I tend to look at most, one in terms of just how they're performing is CSAT, and the other in terms of how healthy is the support machine is the backlog, backlog trend, really. Got it. And to the point on the customer support, you know, there's uh, Gartner came up with this new thing, which was uh, CES or or customer effort score. I think they, they acquired some company which was doing the standard. And uh, one of the unique things that I found about that, at least it was being claimed that higher CSAT doesn't mean that I'm a loyal customer. Right. So, for example, I personally had this issue with a company, you know, they they charged me six hundred dollars for a product that I had not used. And I was like, why are you charging me so much? And so eventually they returned the money, but it was such a painful experience. So if they asked me, Sandeep, how would, how did we do on this case? Well, I, I'll give them a 10 because I got my money back. <laughs> if they were to ask me, Sandeep, how did we do overall? Did we make it easy to do business with you? Uh, I'll give them like a one or two on that. And um, so I related my personal experience to the CES that if the company were to ask me that question, I'll give them a low score. So are people in your industry or, or yourself, what do you think about the CES though? Well, I think, um, so the, the example you described, your experience, I think the, the MPS score would tell you how the company did as a whole, right? And, and you would score that company pretty low because you didn't get any value out of your investment. Um, so MPS would, would tell you that CES, as I understand it, and you know, it's not something that I've used yet, but I'm familiar with it. But the whole idea behind CES is to measure like, how much work does it take to make a customer successful? Like, you know, every company that exists and has some revenue um, likely has customers who are successful. But did it take a professional services engineer six months to implement the, the product before you started seeing value and, and countless hours on the customer side to make this product finally work, um, that CES would be pretty bad, right? Well, it depends on, on the industry, but I see. Certainly I see. in my industry, that, that would be pretty bad. So that's how I think of CES. Uh, the whole idea there is to measure how much work it takes to, to get your, your customers both implemented and healthy you know, are they up and running? Or are they getting value from the product? That, you, and you want that to be as low as possible. You, you want, the, at least in terms of effort, in terms of man hours and time, um, you want your customers to reach value as quickly as possible. That's just a core tenet of customer success. So I, I love the idea of CES. Um, me personally, I've not implemented before just a sophisticated <laughs> thing. Um, and I'd love to be able to measure that. I'd love to know that. So it's definitely something that you know I would explore in the future. I, I think it's a very valid metric. It's just I think right now it's it's very there's probably not a lot of great best practices on how to measure right. that or tools on how to do it. But I can see that being a pretty core metric in the future. Right, and in fact, based on my conversation with support leaders, you know there are three metrics. The actually two that stand out: CSAT and NPS surveys. Right, that almost everybody does. But CSAT they do right after the case is closed. Right. Uh, so this takes the temperature of the experience in that case. NPS surveys, I was told that companies do it on a quarterly basis. And that's an overall experience of dealing with a company, which could be with your salespeople, yeah. your support, marketing, and maybe whatever. So that gives a much higher pulse. But the much lower thing is about support. There is only 
because I can only answer one question for you as a customer, <laughs> as a survey. So either you ask me a CSAT question or you ask me uh, the CES and I've never seen it. Uh, like nobody has told me that Sandeep, uh, we do CES surveys. Um, but uh, I found it curious that why, why aren't people doing it or not doing it? So, so that's, that, that's the reason I asked you the question. I've not seen it implemented in my experience, both uh, my personal experience and colleagues of mine, but I, I have heard it discussed as a concept. Um, so I, I don't think it's widespread yet. And I, I don't think part of the reason is like I mentioned, there's no easy way to do it. I think there are ways to do that behind the scenes where you don't necessarily have to engage with the customer and you can at least measure how much time uh, and, and of your own resources did it take to get to this customer to a particular state. Um, that's one way to measure it. Another is to ask the customer as well, like how much of their time did it take? Uh, ideally, you want to combine those, those two. Um, Correct. And actually, but, it reminds me of one statistic that somebody told me, which I'd never heard before. It was requester wait time. In this support leader said, I squarely focus on that because this tells how much time that this, the person who filed the ticket was waiting for, for uh, you as a vendor to reply to them. And there's probably a way to do that. Uh, so somebody sends an email, it takes five hours for somebody to reply, but then they respond back and then another reply is coming after two days, whatever. So they count all the time that the case was in the court of the vendor and because that's the time when the requester was waiting. I don't know, this is kind of unique. That is also, that's a, that's a great metric as well. Uh, it's a really good, uh, it's, it's a problem in the industry uh, in terms of, you know, we focus a lot on SLAs because we have contractual obligations to meet an SLA, but SLAs is almost always, at least initially, uh, initial response SLAs. Mm -hmm. uh, so. You, know, you may get the initial response under an hour, but after that is the customer waiting a week to get their next response. So if, if it'd be really interesting for me to know, like I would love to know right now, you know is my average next response or, or subsequent responses, is that in the, in the order of hours or is it in the order of days? That's, that would be very interesting for me to know. <laughs> I, can, I can see that being a, a metric that would be very valuable. I've not seen also a tool that just has that out of the box. So I, I believe that'd be something that, and all the data is there. Correct, right. I've not seen a tool just out of the box show me that report. Maybe the next job for your director of support to, to do that, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be sure to let him know you assigned that, not me. <laughs> I'm free to carry that, that, uh, that, <laughs> uh, but Hey, uh, I liked when you talked about customer success, you talked about customer health and the problem in defining customer health. So you, you kind of, uh, landed yourself into this, into me asking you this, how do you define customer health? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you've never defined it before, then <laughs> yeah, I, I would, I would start with very basics. Yeah. I've, I've been in places where we've defined it fairly sophisticated uh, but you know one of the problems with getting too sophisticated with customer health is you start to think that you know uh, more than you actually do and and the factors that you think are important may not be the most important factors for, for customers so you have to be careful how sophisticated you make your, your customer health calculations yeah I, I tend to focus first on usage to me that is just such a such a critical metric it's not the only one, and 
that does not mean that if a customer is using your product, they're certainly healthy. It doesn't mean that, but it is a big indication of health. Or maybe a, a better way to say that, if you don't have usage, however you define usage, which varies from product to product, it's very difficult to have a healthy customer. <laughs> That's for sure. So I always start there. I always start with usage. And to get even, even more foundational, if you don't have insight into your customer usage, that's the first thing you have to solve before you even think about health. Uh, you, you need to know what your customers are doing. But doesn't this data come from the product and engineering teams and, and how much, like, would you not need to have them work on this problem for you then? Typically, typically. But there's also tools that make that easy. So tools like WalkMe and Pendo and things like that that you can easily integrate and, and collect a variety of uh, metrics or stats of your customer uh, usage. Uh, so there are, you can either build that into your product and have the engineers add those, those key metrics and send that data somewhere. But the problem with that, if you wanna change that in the future, or if you wanna collect something else, you've gotta go into you know, the, the, the world of, of uh, stories and epics and you, know, you have to wait your turn in the queue uh, and you don't know if that's going to be that's typically not prioritized so using a tool to easily collect usage statistics is usually a, a shorter path to success there but the, the key point there though again is you need to have insight into what customers are doing with your product and if they're using it and what part of the product are they using what part of the product are they not using um, that is absolutely fundamental. Uh, so if you don't know that, then I would start there. And again, there's multiple ways to solve that problem. And you likely will have to interact with uh, your product and engineering teams, but I would start there. Um, and I'd make that the foundation for health. And then you can start adding more components. Um, you know, like, are they, what's their, their latest NPS score? You know, that's certainly an indicator of health as well. Uh, their buying activity. You know, if they're buying more, they're probably healthy. Uh, or how long has it been since they bought? Um, you know, those are those are also health indicators, of course. Uh, but usage is where I would start. Got it. And uh, Manny, assuming that you're you're back at Mobile Aaron, you know, when when you said you were at Customer Zero, and knowing what you know right now, are there any things that you would do differently? Assuming that you have a white slate to to fill, sort of. So you decide what what the support organization is going to do day one uh, or what tools they're going to use. Are, are there any things that you would do differently? Um, for sure, I would invest earlier in customer success. Uh, so the proactive support model, essentially, as opposed to where most every company starts in a reactive support model, I think that is very, very powerful. Um, and it's not just powerful from, this, from the sense of that you're being proactive instead of reactive, but you learn a lot more about your, your customer use cases, the things that really matter when you're proactively engaged with them. You know, when you're engaged with them from just a perspective of something's broke, let me dive in and fix it. You're only, you're only learning a small thing about how the customer is using that particular feature. But when you're engaged from a perspective of what is this, what, what is our, our solution solving for you? Why that matters to you? Tell me how this is integrated to the bigger, 
your bigger world and why that matters, the better you know that, that's gonna have far reaching implications, especially early on in life of a startup when you're really fighting hard to figure out product market fit and then go to market fit. Yeah, I think that's, that's really critical. So if I re rewound the clock to the early days of Mobile Iron, um, it's something that I would implement much, much sooner. And so you're here not talking about just customer onboarding. What you're saying is really talking to them, really understanding how they're using the product and, and what are the pain points that they're having, not just at the onboarding time, but post onboarding as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is, a, this is an ongoing uh, relationship that should uh, exist throughout the life cycle of, of customers and in the SaaS world. Yeah, the longer those customers stick around, the, the healthier you are as a business. Is that person like a champion of yours in the company? Like if you have anything, uh, or, or are they calling on them that, hey, tell me about your use case, how you're using it? Uh, because these could be remote relationships as well. Like you were talking about your support is remote. It's hard to find engineers locally in the Bay Area. So do you see this customer success happening on a remote basis, being successful the way you are thinking about it? Or does it need to be in person? I think it's it, remote is just fine. Yeah, is it nice to have uh, in-person interactions and meetings? Absolutely, and and there's some component to that for sure. That's that's a very sales-like approach, um, and there certainly is value there. But in my experience, the majority of the CSM organizations that uh, I've been a part of has been majority remote. Uh, so there's a lot you can do, you know, over. Uh, you know, over, over Zoom, uh, you know, even just you just turning on the camera alone seems like such a simple, trivial thing, but it actually <laughs> makes a big difference to look into the eye of, of someone else. Um, but, you know, it, what matters in those relationships is uh, just asking a lot of questions and, and really understanding why customers are doing what they're doing and what, what they care about. Uh, and, and it requires a very curious mind. Um, and, and that's just a, there's a wealth of information that you learn from that as opposed to just focusing on fixing problems. So as you're talking about this, man, and I think this is an excellent advice that, that uh, I haven't heard before, but this is really, really important, especially for an early stage startup that is trying to understand product market fit. But this role sounds hard. I mean, you need a person who is asking questions, the right questions, not the boring ones. Uh, which is sort of a, a mindset of a product manager, if you will, then having the depth of an engineer to understand the responses, it's, so let me ask you this, what kind of profile of people have really worked well in this sort of role that you're imagining? Yeah, well, if it was easy, everybody would do it, right? <laughs> <laughs> it certainly is a, a challenging um, professional that, that, you want to have in this role. You know, it's something that I've been really excited about because my, my career has evolved over the years into one that was very much focused on the ones and zeros to one that has evolved into focused more on, on now on the business side of the world and combining those two things together is very powerful. You know, for CSMs, there's, there's a few things there. Um, first of all, it, it's, I totally agree. It's very difficult to find someone who understands the very technical nuances and complexity uh, of a lot of these enterprise deployments. 
and also can understand how that ties into business impact. Uh, that that is difficult to to find, but you know w w the way that I approach that is, and this is not necessarily innovative because this is what sales organizations do, right? They combine a AE an account executive with a sales engineer, and that combination you know, is very powerful pre-sales. Well, it's also very powerful post-sales. Um, and that's the approach that I've taken, at least at the at the large enterprise side for uh, technical customers, uh, is I combine a CSM that is technically savvy enough to understand the industry. Maybe they're not putting their hands on the keyboard and writing code, but they understand the tools, they understand uh, the approach that developers take, um, they understand the things developers care about, and then you combine that with a solution architect type that is much more hands-on uh, savvy and can really get into the nitty gritty. Uh, and that combination can be very powerful. But, you know, but, but short of that, for, if we talk about just the CSM uh, role alone, the, the most important thing in this role is to be curious and, and to ask those follow-on questions. If somebody tells you, you know, I'm, I'm I'm dealing with this issue and we need to deploy this monitoring platform. Why? Why is that important to you? Besides the obvious reasons, well, we need to have visibility into <laughs> our systems. Well, wh why is that an issue? Was there a problem before? What were you using before? It's just that curious mind alone it will just, it'll open up uh, a level of understanding of the customer that you won't get out of just a support interaction. Um, and, and a lot of times, one of the challenges that, that we see is some of the folks that we interact with day to day, they may be a, a, a network engineer or they may be a developer. Uh, and if you try to ask something like, hey, what's the ROI on this tool? You're going to get shut down quick. <laughs> you're, gonna say, you're talking to the wrong person. Um, so you have to ask those questions in a way that uh, is not bringing in um, these business terms. Um, and and the, the interesting thing that I found in these conversations, you know, because I'm, I'm technical enough to, to carry on a technical conversation, sometimes which, what happens is you ask enough questions around this technology that's, that is being deployed, and the person you're working with doesn't even realize that they have the answers to these questions. You just have to ask the questions in the right way. And you, and you have to ask them adjacent to what they're working on in, in, the, in that context. And then you start to learn all of these other things of, of what's happening. But sometimes your subconscious mind picks up things that you don't even realize. And someone asks you a question about it and you're like, oh yeah, you know, there's a project going on and my boss really cares about it for the, these reasons, but I'm focused here on this, this technical piece. No, Mag, this is very interesting that you're mentioning because I think, you know, I have a bachelor's, master's and an MBA, but for how many thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars I've paid in education. You know, nobody teaches you how to ask the, the questions the right way. And, uh, you know, I'm an entrepreneur as well. And, and I've been doing some market research on the side. And I sort of cold connect people on LinkedIn, you know, respectfully. And they pick up the phone. They're kind enough to do that. And then I, it's half an hour conversation. And then I learned actually how to ask the questions. And maybe I'm not so good at it, but at least I learned it. And I did a medium post on that just some time back because I think this art of asking questions while maintaining respect for other person 
and at least getting the data that you're looking for <laughs> was not easy, at least for me, I'll tell you. But uh, It certainly uh, is not. And you're definitely right. It certainly is not easy. And, and it's, it's an area that I spend a lot of time studying myself and figuring that out myself um, and then teaching my team and, and working with them and, and, and learning from them as well. You know, it's not like I'm, I'm, I'm know everything that they teach me a lot about their interactions. Uh, so, it, but it's an area of focus. So just this whole area around I think discovery is the term that, that we typically use. Uh, you know, it's something that is sometimes overlooked, um, but incredibly, incredibly valuable. Um, right. and, Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to add that, you know, my last role, uh, we did we did quite a bit around this. And one of the first things we did when we realized, you know, this was just a huge gap for us is we got the CSMs and we got the solution architects in a room together. And, you know, we did this at an offsite and we, we started asking, we had the CSM start asking the solution architects. Yeah, you know, and it was just a very open dialogue. You know, what's this? What's that? Why does that matter? How is this linked to this? thing um, and out of that we distilled out the questions that matter you know because there's a million questions you could ask but we wanted to distill that down to the key questions that matter for our specific industry for our specific tool uh, and that exercise was super valuable and then we just we codified that and made that part of our, our practice so and, and we pushed it into pre-sales and we have pre-sales use that um, and they gathered all the information that was most important uh, and it was made it much easier for them to transition accounts to us. Now that we knew, you know, these are the things that really matter. We need to collect that up front. I love this. This is this is a great instance. And you know, I'm reminded of this another thing you talked about discovery. And I'll quickly mention this. I was talking to this person, and I had the list of my questions ready to fire. You know, uh, after my mutual introductions, and this person said, "Yeah, there is no problem," and he was quiet. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what to do?" And I was about to keep the phone is like okay well there's no problem there's no and this person was like well and he didn't know me of course right it was a cold connect or linkedin and then somehow i reminded of got reminded of this 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 corny thing that you know i have this with my son he's an eight-year-old i we keep on joking about this like dgu don't give up and i was like okay this phone call is going nowhere so i said okay what would you do instead and uh, this guy said sandeep if you have to start a, and this guy then started on on, on something and he wouldn't stop for the next 10 minutes. Uh, just by the, <laughs> the way of me asking this question, what would you do instead? And I'd learned a ton from that conversation. So it's sometimes you'd have to just let go of the script. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, it was, it was interesting a conversation after that. Yeah, so, that's, a, that's a really good point. Anywho, so we learned a lot today in this podcast. Uh, Manny, this is just so fascinating. But before we let you go, could you share uh, one or a few business books uh, that you love and why? Sure, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll start with the first uh, one. Um, it, it's in, in a, I'm a bit biased on this book, but mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's called Survival to Thrival. And it's a two-book series. Uh, the first book is um, titled Building the Enterprise Startup. And, and the second is uh, Change or Be Changed. And this book was written uh, by Bob Tinker, who was the CEO of Mobile Iron, uh, along with Tehi Nam, who was one of the, the initial investors in uh, Mobile Iron. Um, and it's, it's a really fascinating book that is very succinct. Both of these books are 100 pages, so they're, they're 
They're perfect for execs in the industry, and they're perfect for folks that are in the startup world. And, and the first book really focuses on how startups evolve and this whole notion of product market fit versus go-to-market fit, which is very different, uh, and how to identify that. And, and you know, he really brings in a lot of his past experience along with our experience at Mobile Iron. So obviously, it's something that, that is close to, to the heart. Um, but the second book uh, there is called Change or Be Changed. And what that focuses on is how different roles evolve in the life of a startup. Um, so, you know, starting from the top, the CEO role, what the CEO does when you have no customers and you've not launched versus what the CEO does a couple of years later with, you know, a few hundred customers versus pre-IPO versus post-IPO, that role evolves and that, that those roles evolve at all levels. Um, and I definitely experienced this in my time at Mobile Iron. You know, I started there being very hands-on, working with customers directly, solving problems. I had to evolve my role. So I had to change or I would have been changed. You know, either I wouldn't have been a good fit for the company anymore or my, my career would have stagnated. Um, and this happens in every kind of thriving startup. And in this valley where we live in, there's, there's a lot of those. And there's a lot of those that are growing very fast. Um, so it's a great book that gives you kind of a blueprint for how to adjust to that change. So th those are, that's a great series. Um, and, and one of the others that I really liked, ironically, is uh, called Startup Land, which is uh, about Zendesk's uh, rise to prominence and IPO. Um, it's a great story. It's an international startup. Um, and just a great story of, of how they created the product, why they disrupted this market. Um, you know, and just, uh, you just get to hear all of the, the, both the good and the bad of the startup <laughs> world leading to, you know, a, a great success that Zendesk has had. Awesome. Uh, these are great references, by the way. In fact, uh, it was only yesterday that somebody had mentioned to me about the, uh, the, the book from, uh, your, your CEO at Mobile and survival to thrive. Um, yeah. I'm definitely going to read that, and especially if it's short. So. Yeah, 100 pages. Yeah, the second <laughs> one just came out a, a month ago, I believe, so they're, they're brand new. Awesome. Hey, Manny, thank you so much for your time today. I, I thoroughly enjoyed your insights uh, into uh, the startup land of uh, running support for startups. So this was an amazing conversation. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Sandy. It's been a pleasure.